0: First that we need to reimagine the mission, the mission that God has given us for centuries. It has been invite people to church and the church will get people saved and the church will disciple people. And you're really just the audience and where the crowdfunding comes from. And we said that really needs to change because our culture has changed. There's going to be a new front line for evangelism and discipleship. It's going to be your living room, your front porch, around your grill, at your kids, baseball and soccer games, at your work. We are called to be on mission with God everywhere we work, live, and play. No longer inviting people to go meet with God over there that one hour on that one day, but that we bring His mission with us everywhere we go. Amen, church? Shouldn't be news, but it's always challenging. And then, second, we have to reframe the message. Never changing the message, the good news that Jesus came and gave his life on our behalf and that he rose from the dead so that we can live as well. Never changing it, but understanding that the starting point for the conversation has changed over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Very few people are walking around going, will I go to heaven when I die? They're not asking that question because they've already decided there is no heaven. There is no hell. I don't need to worry about it. And so not changing the message, but understanding that the starting point has moved and we need to reframe the way that we approach the gospel with people, yes? Okay, I'm I'm gonna keep asking until I see some heads nodding or, all right. We have to make sure that we're answering questions that people are actually asking. Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul wrote this, and and pay attention, he wasn't writing to a group of preachers, he was writing to an entire church, and here's what he told them. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, amen? We're gonna practice, there we go. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Again, this is something he's writing to the entire church, not just the staff or paid professional Christians that are out there, but to the entire church. And let's work this backwards. He said, your feet should be beautiful because of the news you bring. People should see you coming and go, oh, good. They bring the best news because you have been sent. To what? To preach. Now, we've taken that word and we've meant stand with a microphone in front of a room full of people. That is not how Paul meant that word, to preach. They didn't even have microphones, let alone rooms full of people. It was you are to take the message with you wherever you go. You have been sent because unless you preach, they cannot hear. And if they don't hear, they cannot believe. And only those that believe will be saved. So each and every one of us has been sent out with the message to preach the good news, how beautiful our feet should be as we take the good news to the world around us. So as we talk about reframing the message, again, not changing, but understanding there's different starting points. As I've been reading this book uh, called God's Space uh, by a guy named Doug Pollock, Uh, He works for athletes in action. They travel all around the world using like basketball and soccer and those kinds of things to spread the gospel with people. And one of the things that he challenges in this book, and we're going to kind of work through some of his thoughts in this book, is that it's not so much our job to go and just tell people the gospel whether they like it or not, whether they're ready for it or not, but it's our job to create space for people to have spiritual conversations, for people to have meaningful conversations about what they believe and what we believe. Do you see how the approach to those two things can be very different? We have to have the clear goal in mind. We're to create space for people to encounter Jesus, not just to hear the message, but to actually have opportunity to meet with the King of Kings. And yes, hear the good news, but not just, okay, good, I told them, Jesus died for your sins. I walked them through the Romans road, check off to the next one. But we're there to create space for people to actually encounter the risen King. And we have to understand this. Our goal is not to make converts. Hear me. This is a life lesson that we should all understand. Never set a goal that you're not in control of the outcomes for don't, if you're a parent, your goal should not be my kids are going to eat three servings of vegetables a day. Because guess what? You can't control that. Before we're parents, we think we can. I'll just tell them they have to. Yeah. Here's what you can do. My goal is to expose my children to vegetables so they're not foreign objects. And that hopefully as they grow, they're familiar and they realize, I like this one and I like that one. All we can do is set the table. We can't make people eat. The same is true when it comes to having spiritual conversations with people. When it comes to introducing people to the good news of Jesus Christ, all we can do is set the table. We can't make them eat. So for years, we've been told, or at least I've been told, your goal is to go win as many people as possible. And I kind of always walk around feeling guilty because not too many are responding or not as many as I wanted. But I'm not in control of that. A much better question, have I created space for people to be able to encounter jesus when the door has been opened have i walked through and shared the good news of jesus but that's different from have you won anyone lately do you guys see that the apostle paul said it like this and actually speaking to the same idea he's talking about when he introduced the gospel to the city of corinth Paul was coming and he said, look, I didn't have the best sermons planned out. I actually intentionally went the other way because I knew that if you believed because I talked you into it, someone else could talk you out of it. Unless you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit for yourselves, your faith wasn't gonna last. And so Paul came and said, I didn't wanna shortcut that. And so I created space for you to experience, he says, demonstrations of the Spirit's power for you to see God at work in your own life. And then when the door was open, did Paul share that message with them? Amen, absolutely. But he didn't come in with a checklist and go, I'm hitting them with it whether they want to hear it or not. He created space for them to experience the presence of God. And as they responded to God's presence, he shared with them the good news. We are here to create as the author would call it God's space, space for God to move in someone else's life. There's there's a passage in the book of Psalms, chapter 34, where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Our job is to create space for people to taste and see that the Lord is good. They live in a hostile world where somebody is always attacking your beliefs, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, no matter what church you go to or don't go to, your beliefs are always kind of under attack from someone, and the world is longing for people to come along and create space for them to actually ask some questions, for them to actually taste and see what would it even look like if Jesus were real? What would it even look like if his promises were true? We can help create that space for them to start on that journey. Does this making sense, church? I know Kim's got me. So in this uh, book, God's Space, one of the places he starts is he goes, look, before we get into how to create that space, let's talk about some things that almost instantly kill that space. He calls them spiritual conversation killers. And we're just going to walk through. There's 10 of them. So I'm going to move as quickly as I can because I could kind of preach on all of them. Some of them are kind of distinct and by themselves. Some of them are different facets of the same thing uh, and just kind of said in different ways to maybe spark something with us. So the first spiritual conversation killer we're going to look at is an unbelieving heart. Whose unbelieving heart? Not theirs. By definition, they have an unbelieving heart. That's why they need to hear the gospel. But when we have an unbelieving heart, and by unbelieving heart, what I'm talking about here is not we don't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead on our behalf. What I mean is we don't fully believe the promises of God Every day at 10.02, I have an alarm that goes off, and I've talked about this before. You didn't know there was gonna be a pop quiz. What is it that I pray for at 10.02 every day? Some of you do it as well. What is it? Three. My three? No, actually, I pray for them at 3 p.m. <laughs> I know, that's the logic here. I pray for Luke 10.02, 10.02, Luke 10.02. Luke 10:2 reads like this. He told them, Jesus, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. God is saying, though, the harvest is ready. I just need some workers. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out. Do you know how most of my prayers start at 1002? Lord, I don't believe you. Like, if I am truly honest with you, you say the harvest is ready. I look around and I go, no, it isn't. I see the harvest very differently from you, God. And the first place I have to start is repenting of that. I don't believe you, which is a hard thing to say. It's hard in prayer to look at the God of the universe who we know the Sunday school answer is everything you say is right, but to go, but if I'm honest in my heart, I don't believe the harvest is ready. How does that then impact my conversations? Do I go in with hope going, what if today was the day that this person could begin that journey? No, I walk in going. They're too broken. They're too lost. No one wants to hear this. Why bother? My own unbelieving heart short circuits the whole thing before it ever even starts. When, when I when I pray this prayer, I'm amazed not only at my lack of faith, but my complete lack of hope. Often because I've forgotten who I was when He found me. And I go, oh, but Lord, they're too much. I was pretty good. You know, I just needed that nudge, but they're so broken. And it's pride, it's arrogance, it's stupidity. I lack the hope. I have an unbelieving heart that God is really going to do what he says he's going to do. And it undercuts every opportunity that I'm going to have. How many of you are in that same place? I'm, I'm talking about myself. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He, being God, has made everything appropriate in its time, He has also put eternity in their hearts, but man cannot discover the work God has done from the beginning to the end. Do we truly believe that God has put eternity in the hearts of every man, woman, and child that he created? That there is this longing for something that earth could never meet. There is this longing for a relationship with God. They have been built to be eternal yet they're living just in what this world has to offer. Every human being is longing for more, is looking at the best this world has to offer and they're going, it's just not enough, but they don't know where to turn. Do we truly believe that God has put that longing in every heart? Because if so, that's a motivator. I have hope going into every situation. I'm going, okay, God is already potentially drawing this person. This person is, they want to find him. They just need someone to show them how. Or am I coming in and going, they seem fine. I don't know. They seem pretty happy. They're not addicted. They, they live in a nice neighborhood. I'm sure they're fine. If they don't have Christ, they have this longing that will never be met. They will search for the rest of their lives until someone comes and preaches the good news to them. Do I have a believing heart in this? Do you? One of the the things in this book that I love, uh, Doug, the author, he uses the term not yet Christians when he talks about unbelievers. He doesn't say the lost. He doesn't say pagans. He doesn't, any of these other things. Do you hear the hope in it? He goes, every day I have interactions with not yet Christians because every one of them is seeking. The harvest is ready. Could they be the ones? Our unbelieving hearts is our first spiritual conversation killer. The second one, pre-conversational history. The interactions they've had with other believers before that day, the, the people they have seen on the news, the people they've worked with, family members, whatever it is, as soon as they find out that you are a follower of Jesus, all of that is put onto you. You have now offended them like that other person offended them. You have judged them like they felt judged, whatever it may be, hear me. This doesn't have to kill the conversation. We just have to be aware of it or else it will. This is why they better see something different in the way that you live. They had better see that you are not the people they saw on TV. You are not the the picture they have of people out there picketing, holding up their, their hateful signs. They see a love and a joy and a peace in you that they go, how do these things fit together? They better see the way you live and immediately just have questions. This doesn't fit with what they told me Christians were like. This doesn't fit with the people that, uh, from the church I grew up with and ran away from. It just doesn't fit. We have to be aware that every person that we meet has had probably previous interactions with Christians, not all of them good. We have to be aware and be sensitive to that if we're gonna create that space. Does that make sense? Third one, awkward transitions. When when we're having these conversations with people and there's these awkward transitions in conversation. Now hear me, not awkward because we're talking about Jesus. Will it always be a little bit awkward to bring Jesus into a conversation? Be honest so far. What if we got to that point where it was very natural, but there's always gonna be a little bit of awkwardness there, but a man named Greg Steer, who started uh, a ministry called Dare to Share that we used to take the uh, the youth groups to, he had this thing, awkward is awesome. Bringing Jesus into a conversation is always awkward, and that awkwardness lets you know I'm on the right path. But when the transition is awkward for the other person, because all of a sudden, the conversation just took a sharp turn into a place where they didn't want it to go, into a place where they didn't expect it to go, and they're going How did we get here? I I was telling you my story, how are we over here now? What does this have to do with what we were talking about? Awkward transitions because they're disjointed. Have you ever had conversations with somebody where all of a sudden, like, you're talking about something and you just kinda go, wait, where are you? Were you even listening to me? Like, you, you were just waiting for me to slow down enough so that you could jump in and take things where you want them to go? those kinds of awkward transitions kill a conversation. Sometimes uh, as believers, some of you have been taught some practiced lines. When you hear something like this, here's the line you throw out to steer the conversation over to there. People are hip to it, man. People are waiting for it. As soon as it starts to feel like a sales pitch, people are out. Typically, things get awkward because we're breaking uh, or we're committing, excuse me, some of the other spiritual conversation killers that we're going to talk about. But watch how people react when you're talking. When you see them physically take a step back, when you see them with that, like, what? what are you talking about? Uh-oh. I probably just steered the conversation in a place they weren't ready to go yet. Four, we use our language and not theirs. Christianese, as it's been called, when we start talking about being born again. And are you saved? Saved from what? For most people are not asking the question, Am I saved from my sin? And so when we start using some of these, people are like, Huh? And understand this if I'm ever around and I hear you talk about substitutionary atonement with someone, I'll smack you on the back of the head. If propitiation even comes out of your mouth for a second, you've gone too far we have to be able to put our faith, our hope, into words that people can understand. And listen, if we're good listeners, into words they're actually using. We have to translate the gospel for people. A couple of years ago, I started at CrossFit. Now, I have not been in over a year, and so don't blame them for this. <laughs> but when I first started going there, I mean, I walked in day one, and they're like, all right, everybody, the wad is Laser Wolf, 14-minute AMRAP. Get to your stations. What? Like, what are you talking about? As soon as they started using what I came to call CrossFit speak, I felt like an outsider. I was like, this is not for me because I don't even speak the same language these people do. They're talking on a different level. They're talking. Now, thankfully, uh, Scott and Karen, who started the box, had this thing called an on ramp where they sat down and they said, here's what these words mean. And they kind of taught us the code. But it was a really intimidating thing to walk into. It's why a lot of people go to the gym once and don't go back. I I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this machine. Like, what is that? No one will help me. They're speaking a different language. I'm getting away from my notes, and that's dangerous. (laughs) Exactly. But most of you know what I'm talking about, too. But we have to understand that when we start speaking a different language, when we start speaking Christianese, we've lost them. We're we're literally speaking a different language than they speak. Paul again in Colossians. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, this is where it starts. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers. Pray for us that God would open a door to our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. That I can state it plainly for people that they can understand the decision that God is calling them to make. Even the apostle Paul, he had been doing this for like 15 years at this point in time. I'm making that number up. Somebody else can look and see where we are in Acts at that point. He's been doing it a long time and he's still going, pray that I don't mess it up by speaking unclearly to people by falling into what makes sense to me and not what makes sense to them. If the Apostle Paul needed prayer that he could state it plainly, so do we. The fifth one, disrespect. When people feel disrespected, the conversation is over. And listen, these are, we're calling them spiritual conversation killers. Many of these are just conversation killers, period. Not a good way to treat people. But, especially in a spiritual context, We can be condescending. We can be parental to people. When someone's telling us something and we go, well, you know what you should do. Well, that's why God said not to do that. Like, as soon as we take that tone, people feel disrespected. We are not safe anymore and the conversation is over. The walls go up. When we start speaking over people, they can't even finish their sentences because we're busy jumping into it People feel disrespected and the conversation is over. James, in 119, says, My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. Man, we could learn so much from this. What if we did more listening than we did talking? We're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. As soon as people feel disrespected because we're jumping in, because we didn't let them finish, because we took that that condescending tone with people, it's over. We have to be so careful that we are, what's our first call? To love people well. Not to win them because we can't, but to love them well. And I can't love someone and disrespect them at the same time. Disrespect is a showing that I don't truly love them. As soon as they feel disrespected, it's over. He talks about, we'll look into these in some more detail next week, I think, but some evangelistic misdemeanors that we can commit in a conversation when we exceed the speed limit, when we run the stop signs, and when we hijack the conversation. People feel disrespected, and that's the end of our conversation. This next one, agendas. When we come into a conversation with someone already having an agenda in mind. As soon as people feel like a project, they're out. As soon as they know you're doing this because you're trying to get some brownie points for something, they want to be no part of it. As soon as they, they have that feeling where they go, oh, you're just trying to sell me something. You don't actually care about me. This is just your pitch. They're out. Doug in his book says the spiritual conversation should be our ultimate motive, not our ulterior motive. As soon as people realize that we're trying to manipulate them because we have something we want to accomplish, they're out. And think about it. None of us go well for this. How many of you, you accidentally entered, answered the spam call, and at first they're like, oh, hey, you know, we, we just want to talk and whatever, and you're like, oh, cool. And then they go right into their pitch, and you go, oh, I fell for it again. That's why, we, that's why my phone comes up and says spam alert. Don't even answer. People view us the same way, and we have to be so cautious of it. Am I just going into my agenda Or am I truly here because I care about them? I want them to hear and understand the gospel, yes. But do I actually love them as a person? Is that where this is beginning? Because if it's just me trying to check some boxes, they're out. Is this making sense, church? The seventh one, control. Doug says this, if you want to have a meaningful spiritual conversation, you'll need to give up the idea of controlling it. I'm convinced that many Christ followers are afraid to be in settings where they aren't in control of the conversation. It tends to be why we speak Christianese, why we will only do it on our turf, on our time, in our way, is because we're terrified to be out of control. What if they start talking about some of this? What if they ask questions I don't know the answers to? What if, what if, what if? And so we found, as long as I'm in control of the situation, they can't make me feel uncomfortable. But guess who ends up feeling uncomfortable the whole time? them. And as soon as they start to feel uncomfortable, the walls go up and the conversation is over. Our first call is to love people. And love and control do not play well together. She is so good. Everyone needs a Kim. (laughs) That was good. I like that. I appreciate her. We have to be willing to let go of control of the conversation. I am simply here to create space for God to do whatever he's gonna do in your life. I don't get to control the outcomes, the when, the how, the like. that's not what I'm here for. I'm simply here to love you and try to create some, a safe space for you to ask some questions. And I'm not gonna control and dictate where things go. Number eight, judgment. Christians as, as a whole, whether intentionally or unintentionally, have communicated this message to the world. Not only do we not endorse your point of view, we also don't accept you. How many people have you ever heard say, oh, I could never set foot in a church. The walls would just come crashing down as soon as I crossed the threshold. They're convinced I'm not acceptable. I wouldn't be accepted there. The way people you know, would be looking at me and I don't have the right clothes and uh, I don't know, the world is convinced that they're not accepted by us. And for the most part, our response as Christians have been good, they get it, clean it up. This is not the message of Jesus. I was reading in the book of John this week where the woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. Did Jesus endorse what she was doing? So he told her, be gone with you. Get out of here, don't touch me, right? Did you guys read that one? No. Everyone was coming condemning this woman. Jesus actually defends her. Okay, fine, go ahead, stone her. But the first one of you without sin, you throw the first stone. They all drop the stones and walk away. And what was Jesus' response to her? He said, where did they go? She said, they all left. He said, then neither do I condemn you. He did tell her, now go and sin no more. That this is killing you. But his first words to her were of acceptance. She was caught in the act. Think about how awkward that is. Caught in the act of adultery. My own daughter just went, ooh. <laughs> it's gotta be even weirder hearing your dad say it, yeah. But Jesus' first words to her were words of Acceptance. Doug says this, acceptance does not mean endorsement. When we confuse the two, we destroy the very space God wants to work in. Many times, not yet, Christians will say or do things just to see how we'll react. This is often to determine whether it's safe uh, enough for them to engage with us in real conversation. Reacting to those things we hear or see comes naturally for most of us. Hear where he goes from here, because it does, it comes naturally. The, oh, that's gross, or the, that's stupid. The condemnation comes naturally. But what we need are supernatural responses. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that communicate radical acceptance if we hope to create space for spiritual conversations to happen naturally. People need to understand no matter where they are coming from, no matter what they have done, no matter what they are doing, they are accepted by God and by his people. That does not mean that I endorse their point of view. That does not mean that I think what they're doing is okay. But they are accepted because while I was still his enemy, he died for me. Who am I to judge anyone else? His first words are always ones of acceptance. I love you. Come near Paul in Romans chapter two. A lot of Paul today. Therefore, any of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet does the same or yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, his restraint, his patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? First of all, we have to understand our judgment is unwarranted because we are just as guilty of the same things. Ours looks a little different. We didn't turn to drugs. We turned to food. We turned to pornography. We turned to other relationships. We turned to becoming a workaholic or whatever, the more acceptable ones but when we stand in judgment of them, we're judging ourselves firstly. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, his restraint and his patience toward you? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It doesn't say God carries a big stick to make sure people repent. It's his kindness, his acceptance that leads people to repentance. Not a doom and gloom message, not hellfire and brimstone, But it's when people discover his love, his kindness, his patience towards them that they are drawn into repentance. Is this what we're leading with or do we have the more natural reactions? Oh, that's gross. I don't want them to think that's okay. You know what? I love you anyway. You are still welcome over to my house even though you do this, even though you look nothing like me. You are welcomed and accepted because he accepts me and he accepts you. Number nine, combativeness. It's too easy to view people with a different point of view as the things that need to be overcome. This is not a healthy lens, church. Dallas Willard, a teacher and theologian, said this. It's very difficult to be right about something without hurting someone with it. When I'm convinced that I'm right about something, anyone that disagrees with me becomes the nail that needs hammered down. I am dangerous when I'm right. Right? The not yet Christians that we're talking with are not the enemy. Listen, they are victims of the enemy. We view the person across from us as the thing that needs overcome. They're already overcome. They're beaten down. They're victims of the enemy and what they need is loved and set free. They don't need to know that I am right. They need to have an encounter with Jesus. That's what I'm there for if you find yourself in that adversarial, okay, let's get into a debate kind of thing, best case scenario, you win the debate, which is also the worst case scenario. No one has ever been beat down into the kingdom of God. I was proved so wrong that I love Jesus now. That's no one's story. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Finally, the last thing, an it's all about me attitude. What I mean by that is, you have that conversation with that person that you can't get a word in edgewise because the the only reason you're there is because they need an audience. It's all about them expressing their point of view. They really don't care about yours. Many Christians can enter into a conversation this way with the best of intentions, but people come away going, they really don't care about me. They just wanted to talk at me. Doug says this, I believe that Christians can slip into these it's all about me kinds of conversations naturally because we're convinced that we have the absolute truth and we do, amen? Amen. Thank you. But we believe that it's what we think that's all that really matters. This kind of thinking quickly turns conversations into monologues in which we end up talking to ourselves. We need to realize that if people aren't asking us about what we believe, we might be wiser to keep the spotlight on what they believe and think. The secret to being interesting in conversation is to be interested. We need to be asking far more questions than giving answers. We, we come into these things, and, and I think, again, it comes from a right place of going, I have what they need, which is true, yes? But then we get a twist and we go, and so they need to shut up and listen, If they would just keep their mouths quiet long enough for me to get through my spiel, they'd be fixed and everything would be fine, right? Wrong. We need to be asking way more questions because it's when they realize they're loved by us, that we're actually interested in their lives and that we're moving toward them, that then they begin to ask us questions. If they're not asking, I have to be real careful. Why am I saying this? Am I gonna lose this person because I've now hijacked that conversation? Man, I need to be asking way more questions. And we're gonna talk about how to do that well and, and all that in the coming weeks, but we have to be so careful that we don't get into it. If they would just be quiet long enough to listen to me, everything would be fixed. No one likes being on the receiving end of that, yourself included. But we so naturally fall into it and we have to be careful. So let me ask these questions, uh, a couple questions for us to discuss. Did you hear anything in those thoughts, and we'll put them back up on the screen here in a minute, that just didn't sit right with what you've learned about evangelism? Was there any of those that you hear and you go, "Yeah, I don't know about that." I've got a ton of them. Really? Well, I mean, that's why we have the billboard signs, right? Do you know where you go if you die today? Like, yeah, that's, yeah. We we have been taught a a couple things in what she said. Again, first of all, what I have to say is the most important thing, which again, we have the good news, but what that leads to is so I gotta get to it as quickly as possible. I have to even overcome them to try to tell them the good news, which is just a, a messed up way of approaching it, and we've also had this idea that it has to be in one encounter. I have to have that one conversation and it probably should be the first conversation, otherwise I'm wasting my time. Instead of going, this is about loving that person well and building that relationship, creating that space where I'm a safe place and we can have those conversations, that 99% of the time will not happen in one conversation. We read the gospels and the problem is we read three years and 16 chapters. And we go, look at Jesus, just bang, 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 bang. Everywhere he went, he just opened his mouth and just hit people with it. There is long stretches of time where God is working and where Jesus is having continuing conversations with people. We don't get the middle parts. And so we just kind of assume it should be this one-time thing. Do you know Jesus? Yes or no? Heaven or hell? That's not how it works. Certainly not in today's culture. What else? Anything else just didn't sit right with you? or are you hear and you kind of go, oh, yeah, I don't know. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, none of these, like at no point in time is God going, oh, I was gonna work, but you blew number three. He can supersede. And one of the things that we will talk about in the coming weeks is the fact that we're not actually taking Jesus with us. He's already there working. We're joining him in his work. And so part of the way that we implement these is coming in and going, God, where have you been working in this life? Where are you creating space and how do I join you there? And so that is kind of the context this is in. That's, that's a really good point. So it's not, because we can also do this of going, oh, I blew number two, I'm terrible at this, I should just never try again. That is not where we're called to be. We will grow in these, you will mess these up, I mess these up regularly. We, we're to grow in them, to try to remo- what we're trying to do is remove ourselves from the equation so that God can create that space without having to overcome us as much as possible. Anything else? Any of these that just kind of go, oof. What most of us have been taught when, when it comes to evangelism training, and not to, I'm not trying to poo-poo all of the evangelism trainings. There's some really good things there, but what we've done with them is turned it into here's the lines. I'm waiting for somebody to ask a specific question so I can hit them with this line, and then that's going to get me into the gospel. And that, we've kind of been trained to look for those. Instead of relying, like, like Peter and stuff, when Jesus talked to him and he said, look, don't worry about what you're going to say when you get dragged before the officials. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. There, there is this intimacy with him that is necessary and in the conversation we've been having assumed to say, I'm going to be watching for the Lord and where he's working. And I'm going to be sensitive to his spirit so that when I see the door cracked because the Holy Spirit is opening it, I know to step through. And I also know that if he hasn't opened it, I'm to wait. And so I'm to enter in going, okay, Lord, what is it you're gonna do? Not waiting till I can like hit him with this transition because that gets me into Romans 3.23, you're a sinner. And off we go to the races. Lord, where are you moving and how are you moving? And there's this sensitivity, this, this back and forth that takes place in these that none of us are naturally good at, but supernaturally, he makes us good at it. Does that make sense? Somebody else has started to say something, David? That's so good. Thank you for that. Yeah. You don't have to get it perfect. I mean, again, tying up some of what all of you were saying, what David was saying, it's not about us. It's about them encountering Jesus who always gets things perfect. And so it's more, am I being sensitive in the way that I'm approaching this? Because is the goal for that person to hear me clearly, or is the goal for that person to have an encounter with Jesus? Which one am I, because those are two very different paths to, to set a relationship on. Let's get into the next question that I wanna spend a couple minutes talking about. Which ones of these are the ones that you struggle with the most, that you're the most guilty of? Which of these spiritual conversation killers? I'll start with myself. Uh, Kind of what Kim was just saying, It's, it's the judgment. For me, it's really hard to walk that line of going, I accept you, but what you're doing is wrong. And I don't want you to get, because I get in my own head, I don't want you to get the message from me that I'm saying it's okay, but I also know I can't just walk in and go, hey, sinner, quit it. And so, like, and so what I will tend to do is, naturally, I just take my hands off and go, all right, Lord, you do something, because I don't know how to love this person as long as they're doing X, Y, or Z. And that's my own junk. Instead of just like, Lord, I'm just going to walk in, I'm going to make sure they know that they're loved and accepted, and I'm going to let you take care Of dealing with their sin it's that wonderful verse that says Bryce Payne was sent to convict the world of sin and guilt and righteousness oh wait the Holy Spirit was not me but I struggle with that 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 judgment one is my own personal stumbling block in these that's what I'm going to trip over first and most often what about you Yeah, a a phrase that I have found very powerful as I've worked to fight against this myself um, is again, there's a, a certain baseline of relationship that has to be there. But being able to tell someone, I love you, so I feel like I have to say this, like you're not gonna find what you're looking for in that, whatever it is. And it's that I'm not trying to judge that, but because I love you, I'm trying to tell you that's not where hope is found. That's not where life is found. And I'm gonna keep loving you no matter what decision you make but i don't believe that's where you're going to find what you're looking for and and trying to parse that but that that's not a day one conversation for people what else Yeah, the, the combativeness, in case you couldn't hear Shelton he's saying, it's such a natural thing. That's the world we live in. It is combative. You're this side or you're that side. And so it's hard not to get drawn in because that's where people start. Do you know what I tell my kids when they're being too rowdy in the church? They can't chase you if you don't run. You know, and the kids always look at you like, that's the dumbest thing ever. Like, but here's the thing. Like, and truthfully, this, this is a discipline. People can't fight with you if you refuse to enter in. Like to enter in a a combative, let's debate it. Here's where you're wrong kind of thing. It sucks the air out of the room. They can't fight if you're not willing to join in with them. The problem is it is such a natural response and that's where we need those supernatural responses. I love Linda. So the best thing you can say for that is I'm gonna pray for you, but I'm gonna try to do it the way she did it. I'm gonna pray for you. Go ahead, argue with that. <laughs> no, but it's, it is so good. You know what? I love you and I'm going to pray for you in that. It's so good. It, yeah. And it, 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 you can't necessarily just diffuse it again. There's no, just say this and everything's okay. But I have found like, ask, again, I ask, try to ask way more questions than anything else. And even asking the question, have you ever seen me do that? Cause that, man, that is not my heart. And that's not what I want to do. Like, is that something you've seen in me? And I mean, depending on how bold the person is, if it is, they'll tell me most often praise the Lord. It's you know what? No, it's just most of these Christians. Yeah, that is really frustrating. And I can understand that. man, I don't want that for you. You know? And like, not that it diffuses the whole thing, but in those things, like just, I'm, I'm giving advice as if I'm really good at this and I'm not. So please don't hear that. (laughs) I'm figuring things out along the way with you. Anything else? Yeah, I'm not necessarily going to weigh in and say right or wrong, like whatever. But I can definitely see that being effective of being able to go, who do you think is more frustrated with that than believers? Like they are supposed to represent us well in the spotlight, and they were doing this and this and this. Like I'm, I am so frustrated with that. You know, like I don't, I don't have an issue with that. I mean with anything, saying, hey, this works for my kids and then trying it out on adults. That is where we do need to ask those questions. (laughs) Am I crossing a line? Um, But there's gonna be some of that stuff of just going like, yeah, I'm gonna join you in that because I'm really frustrated by that too. You know what that really frustrates me when, when Christians do that too? That's not what they're called to do. That's not what we're called to do. You know what I mean? And hoping that it opens some doors for conversation. All right, so we're gonna close this time. It's already been too late and I feel for David and Kitty in there. But the way that we're gonna close our time uh, is with communion. I have been thinking about it a lot lately and doing communion once a month just isn't enough for me. Um, we've done it a lot since Easter, just with Good Friday and then Easter and then, and I've really kind of enjoyed uh, having that focus be there. And so this is the way that we're gonna start ending a lot of our services. I'm gonna ask the music team to come on up. If our goal is to create space for people to encounter Jesus, we better be encountering him regularly ourselves. Amen, church? And so by way of responding uh, to this message, as we're singing, I want you to have the opportunity to come and encounter the risen Christ. The word communion there literally means to commune with him, that he is present in this way. When When we remember him in this way, he's present with us, And so I don't want us just going out with some new techniques or, okay, don't do this or don't do that. If we can give people what we don't have, yeah? And if we have not been in the presence of Jesus, then we don't smell like Jesus and the world shouldn't care what we have to say. But when we have been in his presence and then we go out on mission with him, sent to preach like we looked at in Romans 10, then his word has power. In us, People smell him on us. And those that that are gonna respond are drawn in. And some push away, but we're looking for the responsive. And so I wanna create some space for us to come and commune with Jesus that we can walk out with that fond memory of man when he meets with me. Every time I taste grape juice, I think of communion. You know what I mean? And to go out with that, with the hope that comes from that of man, what if they had it? What if they had it? We're gonna sing a song called Because He Lives and kind of a dual purpose for this song. One is for us to celebrate. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. But also I'm gonna challenge you, think of some of the people who are not yet Christians in your life. They don't know he lives. What do they have to face tomorrow with? They're in need of it. Why do they act like that? Because they don't know that he lives. And so as we sing this and as we celebrate this, May this also just sear those people into our hearts and minds. They need to know that he lives. God, would you help me to create space for them to encounter you? Amen, church? Let me pray and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, I am thankful for time together as a family, for your presence with us. And God, I pray that we would have encounter with you even during these next just few minutes. God, that charge us up to move forward. That break our hearts for those who are not aware of the good news. Who are struggling under the weight of this life with no strength but their own to carry it. And it's not enough. You have set eternity in the hearts of every man, woman, and child you created. God, may we go out seeking to create space for them to find what they're truly longing for in you. Meet with us, I pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.